This morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, so open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Those of you looking at your iPhones and your iPads will then turn on your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are in the middle of the chapter and we are still talking about resurrection. Paul, last week we saw... He established the concept of resurrection. He laid out his evidence of the resurrection, that if the resurrection is not true, if the resurrection does not occur, then even Jesus is not resurrected from the dead. And if that's the case, then we are of all men most miserable because 
We don't have a redeemer. We have nobody to stand between us and a holy, righteous God. So having established that the resurrection exists and having used Christ as his example, his demonstration that the resurrection must exist, he's now going to talk about the order of the resurrection. From there, he's going to talk about the argument for the resurrection that leads to his eschatological conclusion, which is if the resurrection of Christ is true, which he has established, then the resurrection of those who belong to Christ is also true. And that's the very, very good news. Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of our future resurrection. And then he says, and behold, I show you a mystery. We won't all die, but we will all be changed. We will all go through some kind of resurrection completion, whether we're alive or dead, at the return of Christ. When my son was younger, he said to me one time, when I go to heaven, what am I going to be like? Am I going to be a boy? Am I going to be a man? Am I going to be... What am I going to be like? And I've reached the stage in life where I don't want to spend all of eternity like this. I look forward to the resurrection body, and that's what Paul is going to get into, that the body that we are given is not like the body that's sown, the one that's put in the ground. The body that comes up out of the ground is an everlasting and an eternal body. And so I said to James, well, The answer is you're going to be the best version of you that you could possibly be. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what the age is, especially with God being timeless, God not being confined by time and years and days, and he doesn't mark his lifetime the way that we mark our lifetimes. I don't think age is really going to be an issue. I think you're just going to be the best version of you that God can possibly imagine. And yeah, and what kind of you could God whip up? Now, you won't find the phrase God whip up anywhere in the Bible (laughs) unless you have an electronic version where you can make your own notes. So let's start at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start at verse 1 just so we hit the ground running. At verse 20, we're going to get into the new information. Here we go. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were to one who was untimely born, he appeared to me also. 
For I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith is also vain, and moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, then we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about Adam, through Adam, through Adam's fall, through Adam's sin, through Adam's rebellion, all of mankind have been placed in Adam, and being descendants of Adam, we are all born dying, decaying, sickly, sinful people. Now this verse, verse 21, is a perfect example of what we call the imputation. God imputes certain things to certain people. There are religions in the world that don't like God's imputations. For instance, there are some folk who say that Adam's fall was his fault and that was his error, but that his error is not in any way affecting your personal life. You have the ability from the time you're born until the time you die to live a sinless life according to them that you actually can achieve your own righteousness through your own willing obedience to God. But the Bible says nothing like that. What the Bible says is Adam's fall, Adam's rebellion, is then imputed to all mankind so that all mankind are equally guilty before God. And people don't like that idea. Because they say, well, then I never got a chance. I never got a shot at it. Adam fell, and then we all fell in Adam. That's not fair. But it is what the Bible teaches, and here Paul says it again, that through one man, through Adam, 
death came on all men. Paul also says that the reason that men do get sick and die is because all men are sinful. The proof that you are not sinful is if you just don't die. But so far, the ratio of death is a perfect one for one. Everybody gets one. Everybody who has ever lived has died. And therefore, Paul's logic holds that the reason that all mankind is sick and dying is because all mankind is sinful. And all mankind is sinful because God has imputed Adam's sin to all mankind. Now, by the way, if you don't like that imputation, then you don't get to take part in the other two imputations, which are equally unfair but also grand and glorious. The other two imputations after Adam's sin is imputed to all mankind is all mankind's sin is imputed to Christ. And that's the second half of this verse, that through one man, life, resurrection, came to all men. The third great imputation in the Bible is that Christ's righteousness, he being the only righteous man, he being the only man who ever achieved righteousness before God, with whom God was well pleased, his personal righteousness is then imputed to all those that are part of his called out body, his called out ecclesia, his church. So the three imputations in the Bible are Adam's sin, Imputed to all mankind. All the sin of the elect, all those who are in Christ, their sinfulness is then imputed to Christ. Christ bore their sin on the cross. He died. He paid the blood price. He established the new covenant of salvation by grace through faith. And having done that, his earned righteousness is imputed to all those people whose sin he bore. And that's what the Bible teaches, and that is the foundation of Paul being able to make this grand statement, that since by one man came death, now think about that, I know I mentioned it a week or two ago, but when Adam was created, when Eve was created, and apparently they were created in a fairly mature state, old enough to speak and communicate and tend the garden and name the animals. Adam was not created as a baby because there was nobody in the garden to care for him. So he was created in a fairly mature state, as was Eve. And here they are in the perfect garden, and they have access to the tree of life. And so they can eat freely of the tree. They can eat freely of everything in the garden. And they're told not to eat of that one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know the story. Satan tempts Eve to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And her eyes are opened and she's enlightened to her own sinfulness. And then God sends them both out of the garden. So here they are in the garden. Everything's perfect. Adam's naming animals, there's no help 
that is appropriate for him. So God creates a woman, and Adam and Eve are living in this perfect garden, tree of life, constant life, 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 everywhere life, animal life. Eat the vegetation. Don't eat the animals. Life, 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 just constant living, 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 living. God shows up and talks about death. They don't know anything about death. Adam was created in that state of of constant living. And here's God saying, the day that you eat of it, you're going to die. So God introduces the complete opposite of what mankind had always seen. The, The mankind at this point is two people. It's Adam and Eve and everything they've ever seen is life. And yet God shows up and talks about death. Now death is reigning on this planet. I read a story once about a Puritan who was on his deathbed. He was dying, and they sent a letter to his daughter to let him know that her father was dying. And by the time the letter finally reached her, which took several weeks, and then she had to travel to get to her father, and by the time she got to him, he was right there at death's door. And she said, is he still alive? Is he still among the living? And he mustered up all the strength he had left in him. And the quote was, I'm still here among the dying. Soon I will be among the ever living. So death is reigning on planet Earth right now. Death and enemy to all mankind is running wild on the planet. And God comes onto the planet and talks about life, the opposite of what's going on, the same way as the opposite of all living in the garden. And God talks about death. Now death is all we know on this planet. Perfect one for one, like I said. Everybody's getting old, getting sick, and dying. And God shows up and talks about life everlasting life, ever-living life. And so Paul could say, through one man came death, through Adam's rebellion, but, but through man also came the resurrection of the dead. The word is anastasis. We've been talking about it for a couple of weeks now, but the, the Greek word means to stand up again. And so people who are actually, physically, mortally dead are going to stand up again. And that's the result of one man, Christ. So the same way that one man brought about death in the world, through one man, Christ, there's life brought into the world. The resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, okay, there's that definitive statement. In Adam, all the sons of Adam, all the posterity of Adam we are all guilty the way that Adam was guilty his sin is imputed to all of us and as a consequence we all die now I have to make one very important theological distinction here who dies everybody who's in Adam who's in Adam all mankind look at the second half of the sentence so also In Christ, all shall be made alive. Or if I can say that in a different way, all those that are in Christ shall be made alive. The same way that everybody who is in Adam dies, 
Well, in that exact same way, everybody that's in Christ ever lives. Some folks like to look at that verse 22 and they say, well, look, in Christ all shall be made alive. And if you take that at face value, you have to conclude that God is going to universally save everybody. And since we know from all the rest of Pauline theology that that's not the fact, then we have to look closer at the language, and the language is particular. Everybody who's in Adam dies. Everybody that's in Christ will be made alive, will resurrect, will stand up again. Verse 23. But each in his own order. Okay, so this is Paul answering the question, well, if Christ raised, then why are we still waiting? I get tired of the waiting part. Every day that I get up and check all my vital organs to see what's working and what's not, Every day that I get up and see what creaks and pops and bends and which parts of my body are rebelling today. Every time that I get up and have to kind of stretch and move and go, oh, another day in this physical body, why is he waiting? Well, Paul's going to answer that now, that there is an order to these things. God is an orderly God. God is not of confusion. God has an order that he has spelled out to these things. The first order of resurrection is Christ, but each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits. We talked about that last week, that he is the fulfillment of the first fruits. Uh-oh. That he is the fulfillment of the first fruits feast. See, that was tougher to say than I thought it was going to be. Wow. He is the fulfillment of first fruits. Because he was raised on Sunday morning, which would have been the beginning of the first fruits feast, the same way that he died on Passover, the same way that he was put in the grave at the Feast of Unleavened Bread the same way that the Spirit of God came during Pentecost, all of those things are in order because God is an orderly God. And he spells out a particular calendar of events that have to happen according to his own goodwill, his own good pleasure, and his sovereign determination of how things are going to play out on planet Earth. So first is going to be Christ, the first fruits. After that... Those who are Christ at his coming. Now we know when the resurrection is going to occur for those of us that are in Christ. It's going to occur when he returns. When he comes, the parousia, the unveiling of Christ. When he returns to the planet to set up his kingdom, the first thing he's going to do is gather all those chosen elect people who make up his body, his bride, and he's going to bring them to where he is so that they can see his magnificent glory. And in the process, we stand up again. All those that belong to God that have ever belonged to Christ all those people for the last 2,000 years who have died in Christ, believing in his salvation, his finished atoning work at the cross, everybody who has believed that is going to raise again to be taken up into heaven. So first comes Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. 
then comes the end. Now, be careful, because some people like to stop right there and say, oh, then that's it. That's the end. And they say, well, then the resurrection and the rapture of the church must happen at the very end of everything. But Paul is now going to define several things that must occur to accomplish the end. Then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers up the kingdom. Okay, now, how does Christ deliver up a kingdom if there is no kingdom? First, he has to establish the kingdom. He has to rule and reign on planet Earth so that he can give the kingdom to his father. This is all part of what Paul is referring to as the end. And times and days, the eschaton, this is how it all culminates. It culminates in the return of Christ, who will then set up his kingdom, who will rule and reign from Jerusalem, and then he will deliver up the kingdom to God the Father. When he has, past tense, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. So when he comes to set up his kingdom, one of the things he has to do is make sure that all rulership and all power, all authority on the planet is destroyed so that he alone is the sole ruler of planet Earth. Now, that's going to take some time. In fact, we know from the book of Revelation that it takes a thousand years, what we commonly call the millennium, that time during which Jesus is going to rule and reign. Then he's going to deliver up the kingdom to his father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. Why? Verse 25, because he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And then just about the time we think, okay, he's going to rule and reign until he's put all the earthly enemies, all the kingdoms of this world, all the powers and authorities of this world. Once he has put those under his feet, then he's going to deliver up the kingdom to God. But notice the next phrase, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. So death reigns right now. Ever since Adam, all men die. But at the return of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom and the resurrection of all those that belong to him, from that point forward, for us, there's no more death. In fact, the book of Revelation says that there's no sickness, there's no death, there's no more tears because God is going to wipe away every tear. There's nothing but joy in his presence. And these are the things that we are promised in the resurrection. So we are longing for the resurrection. We are waiting for the resurrection. We're begging God to bring about the resurrection. Send your son back and resurrect your people because I am anxious to get to that point. But the reason we're not there yet is because God has an order to things. So the order is Christ first, those who belong to Christ at his coming, then he's going to set up his kingdom, and then he's going to conquer every rule, and then he's going to conquer his enemies, the last enemy he's going to conquer is death, and he's going to hand that glorious kingdom over to his father. 
And that's all the plan of God. And you happen to be sitting right in the middle of the grand plan of God. So remember that next time that you're sick or next time that you're struggling or the next time that you're thinking, if, if I could just move from this life to the next, the reason that it's hard right now, the reason that we get sick, the reason that we die, the reason that we struggle, the reason that we sin, the reason that we have this constant friction between us and the holiness of God is because we are the descendants of Adam sitting waiting for the final redemption of our bodies, which is promised at the return of Christ, but we're right now in the middle of the plan of God. You get it? So for that reason, I think you can even rejoice in your hardships, in your difficulties, because you know that they have a reason, that they have a purpose, that even your hardships, even your sickness are a result of the plan of God playing out on planet Earth. So first comes Christ, the first fruits, then those who are Christ's at his coming, then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God and the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. That goes all the way back to Psalm 8. David, writing messianically, predicts that God was someday going to put all things under the feet of Christ. Christ was going to have absolute authority and rulership. Which is why, again, Paul would write things like, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. Because he is going to rule and reign. So he has to put all of his enemies in subjection under his feet. Then Paul adds a little bit of theological clarity. Because he's sure that now that he has said this, that somebody's going to jump up and say, wait a minute, if he puts everything under the subjection of Christ, does he put himself under the subjection of Christ? That's one of those kinds of questions like, uh, if God is almighty, then can he create a stone so big that even he can't pick it up? One of those supposed theological difficulties that human beings have a hard time with, but God doesn't have a hard time with. So Paul answers the question, he has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, God, is accepted. He who put all things in subjection to Christ. So Paul's being very clear to say, God is putting all things in subjection to Christ, but he himself is accepted. He is not placing himself under Christ's subjection. So that nobody can say, you have a confounded theology, Paul. He's clarifying what he means. Everything, heaven, hell, and earth, all human beings, all life, and even death itself is going to be placed in subjection to Christ, but God is not going to be in subjection. Verse 28, and when all things are subjected to him, God, remember that Christ is going to give the kingdom to God, 
then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him that God may be all in all. There's too many hymns in that sentence. But the idea is that it is God who is going to subject all things to his son. His son is going to rule and reign. He's going to conquer all his enemies, including the enemy of death. And then he is going to give the kingdom to his father. And then he's going to subject himself and his kingdom to the father because the father has the almighty power over everything. The father is never subject to the son, but the son is going to subject himself to God. Now, this is one head, and, and I'm glad you said that, because this has caused a great deal of theological difficulty for a whole lot of theologians and commentators. Because they say, well, then, is the Godhead, the triunity of God, is it somehow against itself that the Father would subject the Son? The Greek tense in which it's talking about the subjection of the Son, it is in the the sense where Christ is willingly subjecting himself to God. God does not subject the Son like he's a petulant child who needs to be corrected or reformed. Rather, the Son, for the glory of the Father, in worship toward the Father, subjects himself and all things to the Father. And that's the sort of subjection we're talking about here. It's the same way that Paul talks about all of us as Christians subjecting ourselves to one another. We don't do it because we've been dominated. We do it because we love the other person and willingly subject ourselves. When Paul says, wives be subject to your own husbands, and women go, no, never, I can't do that. He is saying, do that willingly. Subject yourselves because that's the way the order is set up in God's economy. Same idea here. Christ is subjected to the Father willingly as he subjects the entire kingdom that God gave him. He gives it all back to God, the Father. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Same thing in Philippians 2 where he, even though he's equal with God, he humbles himself. Exactly right. So the consistency of Pauline theology runs all the way through all of his letters that it is Christ who has willingly subjected himself to the will of the Father. I think I would even argue that when he's in the um, Garden of Gethsemane, he says, if it were possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He's subjecting himself to what the Father has determined to do. So Paul says... When everything is wrapped up, when the kingdom has been handed over to God, he is then going to subject himself to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. All the glory, all the honor, all the worship ultimately goes to God the Father through Christ the Son. And then verse 29. Now, I have read Lots and lots and lots of commentaries the last two weeks about this verse. And here's what I can tell you about the consensus of theologians concerning verse 29. There is no consensus. 
They have no idea what it means. They all argue about it. They try to explain it. They try to comprehend what in the world Paul is talking about. I will give you the interpretation of it that I find the most agreeable. Paul wrote, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised, why then are they baptized for them? He's returning to the argument about the fact that resurrection must be a reality. Resurrection must occur. Every once in a while in Pauline writing, he will say something that is really a part of the culture of his day, and we don't feel it as much, like when he says that Cretans are brute beasts. Okay, well, he's really talking about the culture that was 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. And we don't know that anymore, and so we don't really feel the weight of it. But what was probably occurring, and certainly was occurring in the cities around Ephesus, was that there was a practice of baptizing for the dead. In fact, it was also fairly well known within the military that the front line of men who would march into battle expecting to be mowed down, that the next line of men who lived would be baptized for those who had died. Now, what we do know is that baptism for the dead has never been a Christian form of baptism. The Mormons have decided that they're going to baptize for the dead, and they believe that they can actually be baptized and do good works on behalf of people who have already passed away. But that has never been a biblical Christian position. But they point to verses like that and say, see, Paul talks about baptism for the dead, so therefore we're biblically valid in doing that. But they ignore the greater weight of Pauline theology. Paul seems to be saying, this is something you do in your culture. You right now are baptizing for the dead in some of your cultural religious practices. And why in the world would you baptize for somebody who has died and has gone to nothing? If there's no resurrection, if there's no life to come, what's the point of baptizing for the dead? You already have this custom. You already baptize for the dead. Why do you do that if you're also arguing that there's no resurrection? That's a stupid thing to be doing. Yes, ma'am. Baptism was not a strictly Christian thing. There were a lot of religions that believed in ceremonial washing. And remember that baptism just means immersion. And so there were a lot of reasons that people would immerse to try to clean themselves up. Especially any religion that was based in you do good works and whatever reward there is in your religion, you get it as a result of your good works. Well, then oftentimes part of the good works was cleaning yourself up. And so since they were already doing that and then doing it on behalf of people who had already died, Paul's argument appears to be, well, why would you do that if there's no resurrection of the dead? So he's adopting a cultural reality that's going on in the society at that moment. In in Ephesus, in Corinth, he's arguing, well, they're doing that. Why would you do that and then argue that there's no resurrection? Yes, ma'am. How do they do that? They're dead and they immerse them in water? What do they do? 
No, it's somebody being baptized on behalf of somebody who's died. Like my, my father died 15 years ago. And so if I, gee, it's been longer than that. It's been more like 20 years ago. If I were to believe that whatever the reward is that my religion teaches and believes, if I believe that dad has not yet reached that state because he was not baptized, then I would go be baptized in his place. Okay, so that's what baptism for the dead was. Yes, sir. I have a question. If you look at the derivation of baptizo, bapto, it actually means to cover with a dye or stain. It's not really a water type immersion. Can you comment on that? Yeah, but I would say that that's almost it. It's not only for, it includes dyeing something a different color because you would have to immerse it to dye it. But to narrow the definition to just that doesn't account for all the ways that Paul actually, and Jesus uses, the word. It wouldn't explain John the baptizer because he's not out there dyeing people a different color. He's out there immersing them in the Jordan River. So while I would say that bapto can include the dyeing of fabrics, I wouldn't limit the uh, definition to that. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. We have to be careful to remember that etymology does not determine meaning. Usage does. Right. And that's true with all words. Right. I have very frequently used the example of Michael Jackson's album, Bad. He wasn't saying this is a bad album. He was saying this is a good album. The etymology of the word bad is negative. But he was using it in a positive way, so the usage dictates the meaning. Does that make sense? When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. And otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? And why also are we in danger every hour? I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, well, what does that profit me? If the dead are not raised... Then let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Okay, so here's Paul's argument again. He's saying, I'm out here preaching the resurrection of Christ. That's the essence of the gospel. That Christ died for our sin and he raised again. I'm out here saying that, but what's the point of what I'm paying, the high, high price I'm paying to preach this gospel? The beatings he had taken, the stonings he had taken being hungry, being left for dead, being in the sea a day and a night in the deep. Why am I even going through all that? Why am I fighting with wild beasts at Ephesus? Why am I even dealing with all this if the dead aren't raised, if there is no resurrection? If there is no resurrection, Christ is not raised, then why am I even doing this? Why am I going through all the effort and all the pain that I'm going through if I'm not convinced that there is a resurrection? Why am I paying the price I'm paying 
to extol the virtues of Christ and his resurrection if there is no resurrection. I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. And if from human motives, if my only reason for doing this is a human motive, if I'm trying to get rich off the back of Christians, if I'm trying to start the big institute of Pauline theology where everybody will come flowing to me, if I'm doing this out of my own human ego and hubris and need to be admired, if that is my cause for doing this, which can be his only cause if Christ is not raised from the dead. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then the only reason Paul is out there preaching this is because he's trying to attract followers to himself. And so if from human motives... I'm going through this and I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Then what does any of this profit me? I'm not getting rich. It's not panning out for me. I'm going to prison. I'm going through these beatings. People are constantly telling me to shut up and go away. Why am I doing all this if my reason for doing it is a human motive? No, I'm doing this because Christ really is raised. And because he really is raised, it is incumbent on Paul to preach the gospel the way it was delivered to him from Christ. And whatever beatings, whatever price he has to pay, whatever he has to go through, that's just the cost of being a disciple of Christ. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does that profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If the dead are not raised, if nobody's raised, Christ isn't raised, then you're still in your sin and you're going to be judged by God. So live it up while you can. Everything you can get out of this life, make sure you get that out of this life because this is all you get. But if Christ is raised, then we have the hope that when he returns, we also will stand up again we also will be raised because he was raised. Now, verse 33. There were Christians in Corinth who were still apparently hanging out with, cavorting with people who said, you know, none of this is true. None of that Christian thing is true. You're being deceived. I'm sure everybody in this room has had that experience. Is there anybody in this room who's never had the experience of people saying, Christian, you know, come on. If you're wise, if you're intelligent, if you're well-educated, you would have grown past that Christian thing. Now that's a crutch that just kind of holds you up. Well, the same thing was happening back there in Corinth. And so Paul's answer to it is, well, then don't hang out with those people because they're going to have an influence on you. Do not be deceived, says verse 33, Bad company corrupts good morals. That's a good adage. If you hang out with bad company, if you hang out with people who don't care about the things of Christ, if you hang out with people who have no moral center, who have no ethic in their life, if you hang out with them long enough, you're going to start being like them. Because there's power in numbers. What was the word they always used in school? They would talk about uh, peer pressure. 
Uh, you wanted to be accepted. You wanted to be liked. You wanted to be like your friends and the people around you. And so oftentimes kids would do things that they knew they really shouldn't do, but they would do it anyway because they got so much pressure from their peers. And so Paul argues, do not be deceived because bad company corrupts good morals. Here's Christianity preaching Good morality, positive ethics, faith in Christ, do well to others, treat others as better than yourself, look on the things of others and not on the things of yourself, and then you go out into the world again, turn on the internet, turn on the TV, and what do you hear? You hear me first, it's all about me. I'm raising myself up. I'm getting everything I can get. I'm not going to express an opinion on our new president, but he really is the culmination of the me first attitude. He has accomplished everything this world could possibly offer. He's become a multi-billionaire. And that trickles down to everybody who says, well, then I want to be like that. Get as much as I can get out of life. Me, me, me. And then Christianity comes along and says, no, it's not about you, you, you. It's about others. It's about take care of others, love others, sacrifice for others, care that others are fed and others are clothed. And he knows that that's going to be objected to by the world. So he says, do not be deceived. In other words, if you don't think this is true, you're wrong. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts. Good morals. So verse 34, become sober-minded as you ought to be and stop sinning, stop rebelling. For some, some people in this world, for some have no knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. That you're getting your morality, you're getting your behavior, you're getting your ethic from people who don't think there's any God. And so they don't feel any sense of necessity that they should perform a certain way or be a certain way. And those are the people you're hanging out with. Those are the people who are influencing you. And it should not be that way. It should be Christ who is influencing your behavior. It should be Christ and your knowledge of Christ that dictates the way that you behave. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Be sober-minded as you ought. Stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. But someone's going to say, verse 35, but someone will say, okay, so if the dead are raised, okay, if the resurrection's true, what are they going to look like? The same question my son asked. What am I going to be like? How old am I going to be? In my case, am I going to have hair? Will I be taller? Some are going to say, well, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? Now, Paul answers them as kindly, gently, and generously as he possibly can. He reaches out to them with great compassion for this question because he has he has conscienced every man's question and realized that every man's inquiry into God is equally valid and good. So he answers, you fool! 
I added the volume. You empty head. You're not thinking right about God. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Okay, now he's talking about agriculture. He's talking about seeds. He's talking within the framework of an agricultural society. If they don't grow food, they don't eat food. And they know that they have to get out there every spring and plant seed. And then eventually that seed will become some kind of grain, and then that grain can be eaten. So they know that cycle. They know how that works. So Paul's going to use that as an example. You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So you put a seed into the ground, you bury it, you water it, and then you, you leave it there in the ground, and it dies and morphs into the thing it's going to become. And Paul says, that's how nature works. That's how you grow food, and you know that. How can you ask as silly a question as, well, then what kind of body are they raised with? Clearly, it's not the body that you've put into the ground. Otherwise, the Bible teaches the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> He's not teaching the rising of dead, bedraggled, bled out, corrupted people who smell like death and are dragging their arms behind. That's not what he's teaching. He's saying that dead, decaying body, we buried that, but the body they're going to be raised with is a different kind of body, a renewed and a regenerated kind of body, the same way that you put a seed in the ground and then the seed becomes something else. That which you sow does not come to life. It doesn't spring up. It doesn't stand up unless it dies. Now that which you sow, the seed, you do not sow the body which is to be. Nobody ever said, I'm going to grow a tomato plant. And then having grown the tomato plant, lush with tomatoes, said, I wonder what would happen if I bury this. And then they bury the tomato plant and wait for tomatoes to come up. Once the tomatoes have come up, you've got tomatoes. Happy day, go ahead and eat, make a BLT, you've got tomatoes. So his argument is nobody has ever sown that which is going to be. But what you sow is just a bare grain, just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God then gives it a body just as he wished and to each of the seeds a body of his own. Okay, so here's what he's talking about. I can have a whole mess of seeds here. I can have some grain seeds, and I can have some flower seeds, and I can have some apple seeds, and I can have some orange seeds, and I can, and I can plant those in the ground. And then, in order to make them become what they're going to become, I do nothing. I, I just put them in the ground. I might water them occasionally, but God might also water them like he's doing today. This tree that we see out front of our building here, I did nothing for that. It just sprang up. It's just here. There was a seed in the ground. It became a tree. It grew. We did nothing. Nobody here fertilized it. Nobody watered it. Nobody did anything. Boom, tree. God is going to give it a body as he has determined, and every seed, argues Paul, has a different kind of body. An apple tree, an orange tree, a pear tree, a rose bush. Wheat, barley, hay, tomatoes. grass, tomatoes. 
So Paul's point is, if it is God who gives these seeds, these little seeds, these nothing seeds, these seeds, if he gives them each a body as he desires, how much more is he going to give you a body as he desires? Once you have been planted, once you have been put in the ground, once you have been put in the dirt, the same God who can raise up apple trees and orange trees and pear trees is the same God who can make human beings stand up again but give them a body after his desire. You don't know how to make an apple. There's nobody in this room that knows how to make an apple. If I say to you, make some apples, you'll go out and plant an apple seed and wait for an apple tree. But nobody in this room knows how to make an apple. That's all up to God, and that is Paul's argument. If it's all up to God what kind of body he gives seeds, then he's going to do that for flesh. Now look at verse 39. But all flesh is not the same flesh. There's one kind of flesh for men. There's another flesh for beasts. They have fur. They don't have the same kind of skin we have. We might grow some hair or a beard, but we don't grow fur. Nobody's ever come up to me with the necessity to pet me. Nobody's ever gone, oh, he's furry. I I like him. There is one flesh for beasts, but there's another flesh for birds. Birds have feathers. I don't grow feathers. Do you grow feathers? I've never grown a feather in my life. That's because my flesh is not bird flesh. So bird flesh is different than human flesh, which is different than kitty cat flesh. And there's another flesh for fish who have scales. And I don't have scales. Anybody in here got scales? No. If you do, I'm impressed. So there is a kind of flesh for fish. There is a kind of flesh for birds. There is a kind of flesh for animals. And there's a kind of flesh for human beings. And it's God who determined all those things. He knows how to make different kinds of flesh. But then Paul goes past that and says, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another kind. There is one glory, one essential makeup for the sun. But there's another glory for the moon. And another glory for the stars, because the stars differ from other stars in glory. Do you get the idea of what Paul's driving at here? The same way that there's a whole bunch of different kinds of seeds. The same way that there's apple seeds and pear seeds and hay seeds and wheat seeds. and The same way that there's all these different kinds of rose seeds and tulip seeds. and, and, And when you plant them in the ground, you don't plant tulips, you plant a seed. And then they come up tulips. God does the coming up part. You don't do the coming up part. The same thing with human beings. The same thing with creatures. The same thing with planets. The same thing with the sun, the moon, the stars. It's all different, but it was all created by God. He knows how to create all those different things and what the glory of that thing and what the flesh of that thing is. So that being the case, verse 42, are you bored yet? I know you're hungry. Stick with me 10 more minutes and we'll be done. Verse 42. So also then is the resurrection of the dead. Remember the question he's answering. How are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come back in? So is the resurrection. There's all these different kinds of 
seeds, all these different kinds of flesh, all these different kinds of glory. God's in charge of all of it. The resurrection of the dead is like this. It's sown a perishable body. You die because you're perishable. Because you do decay, get old, and die. And that's what you bury. But it is raised an imperishable body. That's different. That has a different glory. That has a different kind or type than we've ever been. There's nobody in this room who is not perishable. There's nobody in this room that isn't dying. But once we've died and once we've been buried, just like the seeds that sprout up after they're buried and died, we're going to die and be buried and then we're going to raise up in the same way that God gives every seed its body and its glory, God is going to give all of us our body and our glory. Do you get the argument? Do you understand what Paul is driving at here? That's why he can say, you fool. You, you don't understand the magnificence and the glory and the breadth of God, who having created all things, can create a new body for every person. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown a perishable body, but it's raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor. Because it's weak, decayed, and dead. But it's raised in glory. The same God who gave glory to stars. The same glory in the sun and a different glory for the moon. The God who knows how to give particular essence to everything in his universe knows how to give you a particular glory. And when he raises you from the dead, he's going to give you a new body, a new glory. And right now, look at how we're described perishable, dishonorable, sown in weakness. But then we're going to be raised imperishable, in glory, and raised in power. It's, it's sown a natural body, says verse 44, and it's raised a spiritual body. So if there is a natural body, follow this argument, if there is a natural body, then there's also a spiritual body. So how many people in this room think you have a natural body? Well, then Paul argues if you have a natural body, you have a spiritual body. So the same way that you can pinch yourself or poke yourself or or do anything to prove to yourself that you are, I exist. I'm real, I'm physical. He argues that same way you are going to be spiritual through the resurrection of Christ the same way that Christ has been raised in this ever-living, non-corrupting spiritual body. That's what you're going to be raised to be. So there is also a spiritual body. But here's, again, the order. This is the way God laid out the order. So also it is written, the first man... Adam became a living soul. So he was created first out of the dust of the earth. First he was created as a physical body, but then he became a living soul. Paul's argument is going to be that the physical comes first and then the spiritual. That even Adam was physical first because he was created out of the dust of the ground. Then he became a living soul. 
So the physical comes first, the spiritual comes after. And that's the reason that in God's great plan and economy, you were physical first, and then you're going to become spiritual. The same way that you are living right now on this physical plane, in this physical dimension, having all these physical pains, that's God's order, that's God's plan. You are first made physical, and then you are going to be made spiritual. And that's the way it's always been. Look at his example. So also, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So the first Adam was physical. The last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first. But the natural is first. And then the spiritual... The first man is from the earth. He's from the clay of the earth. So he's earthy. The second man, Christ, is from heaven. So he's heavenly. So as is the earthy, as is Adam, so are those who also are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall bear the image of the heavenly. In other words, let me just wrap up with this. I'm Adam's posterity. We are all earthy people because we are Adam's posterity sharing in Adam's sin. He's the first man, and all men that are in him follow after him in their earthiness, in their physicality, in their natural flesh that's dying and decaying and eventually going to be planted. But the second man, Christ, isn't earthy. He's heavenly. He came down from heaven in order to show us what God's plan is for us in order to teach us the things of God, how to worship God. So the first Adam was made out of the earth and he's earthy. The second man, Christ, comes down from heaven and is therefore heavenly. First man, second man. Paul's argument is human beings in Christ are born earthy first and then we become spiritual. Then we become heavenly then we become the man that God has predestined that we're going to be we're ultimately going to be conformed into the image of his son so right now right at this moment while you're busy being earthy remember that this is the plan this is the progress this is the schedule of God that you have to be earthy first in order to ultimately be spiritual and heavenly and that has always been the order from Adam forward. And the way that you're going to become earthy to spiritual, the way that that transition is going to happen is that just like the apple seeds and pear seeds and wheat seeds, you're going to be planted into the ground and then anastasis, you're going to stand up again in the resurrection and then you're going to be heavenly. And that is Paul's argument and his theology concerning the resurrection. And next week we're going to start with, but wait, I'll show you one more thing. 
Paul's just about wrapped it up. He's just about made his case that the resurrection is a reality and that it has to be a reality and that all those that are in Christ are definitely going to be raised again and be heavenly the way that he is heavenly. But he's also going to throw out there and oh yeah, since I said the resurrection happens when Christ returns, there have to be people on the planet when Christ returns and those that belong to Christ when he returns will never see death. They'll step right from the earthy to the spiritual in the blink of an eye. I'm all for that. Sign me up for that. I tell people all the time, especially after what I've been dealing with the last several months with my mom, I'm not afraid of death. Death is the way that I move from this plane to that plane. Death is the way that I... Yeah, I I get to go home. I'm I'm happy for that. But I am afraid of the process of dying. I've had enough experience with that now, personally and individually, as well as through what my mom is going through right now, where the process of dying just seems very ugly and brutal and sad, and and I, I just don't like the process of dying. And if I get to step from this life into the next life and never experience the dead part? Oh, I win. Oh, I would really like to do that. Now, of course, that's not up to me. It's up to God. It's all up to his order. It's all up to his plan. I would really like to be here and be part of the generation when Christ returns. I certainly hope I am. This afternoon's good by me. I'm ready for Christ to crack the sky and come back and get his own people. But I have this sure and certain guarantee. If I'm among those people who decay and die and get planted into the ground the same way that that tree out there grew and that I had nothing to do with it, I am guaranteed that I am getting up out of my grave through the power of God and that I'll have nothing to do with it. I'm going to be passive in the process and he's going to be powerful in the process. And I'm going to be buried decaying and dying and with dishonor, but I'm going to be raised in power and in honor and in glory. And that's the sure and certain guarantee of the resurrection. So can you see why it is so vital to Pauline thinking and theology? If you don't have that, you don't have the essence of what Christianity is. So that's why we've been talking it for two weeks, and we're going to talk about it again next week when we get to uh, Christ returning and some people instantaneously changing that'll be a good day I partially want to be here just to watch it happen I just think it'll be fun in the twinkling of an eye you'll have a hard time seeing it it will be hard to see that is true it's absolutely true oh we got to talk about that whole last Trump thing there, there's still plenty to talk about that's, that's not the last Donald Trump I will point out that's the, uh, the last Trump but we'll get to all that next week so there will be preliminary events that lead up to it, correct? To the return of Christ? The rapture, I guess. Right? I don't think so. That, that is a, a subject of some discussion among theologians. They, they use the word imminence, and there are some folks who are trying to say there is no imminent event in the return of Christ. But the vast majority, and especially of people who hold the position that we do, a premillennial pre-tribulational return of Christ 
there's nothing that has to happen first. But aren't they alluded to in some of the things that you discussed with uh, Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel. That's about the kingdom and about all the things that the Old Testament prophets have been prophesying and about Christ returning to sit on David's throne. All of that is, if I can use this phrase, post-church. And the reason I'm comfortable with that phrase is because of Paul saying in Romans 11, after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel is going to be saved. So there's a sequence to these events. The same way that Paul just said, all those who are Christ that is coming are going to be resurrected. So there's your rapture. And then he said, and then comes the end. And he laid out the sequence of events for the end. So there's no heads up on the rapture. So there's no heads up on the rapture. No. I, I am completely convinced that it really can occur at any moment when, when time ticks off that particular <coughs> moment that God has predetermined the same way that Christ died and was buried and resurrected right on time, exactly as God predicted. Believers in Christ out of every tribe and tongue and nation. Kindred tribe, tongue and nation that we're, that we're going to be gathered to Christ. Absolutely. But I don't think, let me just add this since we're talking rapture here at the moment, I don't think the rapture is going to be anywhere near as big as you find in the left behind books and movies and stuff where there's planes dropping out of the sky and cars going wild and you know people going where's mommy you know and i just don't think it's going to be that big a deal i believe christ when he said that few find it you know narrow is the way straight is the gate that leads to eternal life few find it and wide is the way broad is the way that leads to damnation destruction many there be that go in there at and so I've often said, right, Christ said, when I return, will I find faith in the land? So, I, so I've often said that the Sunday after the rapture, most churches are still going to be full because I just don't think that it's going to be that widespread an event. I think the body of Christ is much narrower than the professing church. Anything else? Okay, they're preparing food. It smells good. I know you're all hungry. We're going to let you go. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.